Welcome. This is the Woodbury Church of Christ Sermon Podcast. We're glad that you tuned in, and if you'd like to know more about our church, you can find out all the information at woodburychurch.org. Or we'll see you some Sunday, Sundays at 10 a.m. Looking forward to it. I'm missing those 30 people this morning, so it looks a little, a little sparser out here today, but that's good. They're off doing a good thing, and, and Daryl is going to tell me, Make sure you keep this this mic right on your mouth. So I've got to. I'm saying that so that I will remember to do that. As you know, uh, Patrick is not here this morning. Patrick is in Mexico with the group, and uh, I want to begin this morning by uh, praying for that group. I think uh, they're doing a good work, and they're going to receive much by being there. So let's pray for them as they're in Cozumel. Father, we know that there is a number. There are a number of people in our congregation this morning that are in uh, Mexico today and they're visiting an orphanage down there and they'll be working with the orphanage down there all this week. We're aware, Father, how important those that uh, are orphans and homeless and, uh, and, and do not have people around them are to you. And uh, we're thankful that there's a group from here that's been able to go down and participate this week. We pray for them. We pray for their safety. We pray that you will uh, let this week that they're spending with the group there be a really good one. We pray that they will receive much and come back to us and share with with us what they have received. Thank you, Father, for your goodness and, and just basically the ability to be able to do this. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. So I had to give Patrick a hard time uh, that he was leaving this particular Sunday because we have new chairs. <laughs> and I'm a little concerned that, you know, if, if you've been here before and you knew the chairs that we had before, there were chairs that helped keep you awake. <laughs> and these chairs are not like that. So I'm really, I'm really hoping that you'll stay with me today and that, that you'll stay awake as we are uh, talking about uh, a really... A vital, important passage. Thank you, Nick, for reading, reading that for us a moment ago. I, uh, I, I, Patrick did, I think, a really great job in helping uh, kick off the study of Colossians last week. And, uh, and he began by talking about the prayer that Paul has for the people in Colossae. And, uh, and the end of that prayer is where I'd like to begin this morning. Because at the very end of the prayer in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, for he, speaking of God, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves, through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And when I read that, that those two verses, I think, well, there we have it, that in short form, is the gospel. That we were lost in the darkness and God came and found us. And he rescued us. And he brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves and has offered us redemption and forgiveness. That's really it in short form. But today, the passage that we're going to focus on focuses on one particular part of that. And that's the Son. He brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. And who is this Son? Well, it's the Son that Nick 
reminded us about when he read this passage. And I'd like to spend just a little bit of time on verses 15 through 20 that talk about the Son and who he is. He begins by saying, the Son is the image of the invisible God. I suppose everybody here likes superheroes, right? And if you think about Superman or Batman or Spider-Man, that all of those superheroes have some sort of other side to them, other characters. So Superman is Clark Kent, right? And Spider-Man is Peter Parker. And, and I'm, I'm really not trying to compare Jesus to a superhero this morning. In fact, I think all of those superhero stories really kind of come out of the story of Jesus instead. But, you know, when we think about Jesus, we think about him having two sides, so to speak. There is the human side of Jesus, the humanity, and there is the divine side of Jesus. And we all know that this was all brought together in one. That God became man. That the divine became a human being. And I think oftentimes we focus on the human side of that because we can identify with it. It's relatable to us. So we think about Jesus being born in a manger in Bethlehem. We think about Jesus showing compassion to all sorts of people as he as he performed miracles. We think about Jesus and the teaching that he gave to us that, that shows us how to live. We think about Jesus becoming frustrated with his disciples sometimes because they just weren't getting what seemed to be the most obvious stuff. And it's, it's relatively easy, I think, for us to identify with that side of Jesus. But it's easy to forget that Jesus is God. And Paul says, reminds us here, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God incarnate. Jesus is God who we can see. There's a passage in Exodus 33 and 34. Maybe you remember the story about Moses, how he was leading the children of Israel through the, through the, through the wilderness. And at one point, he leaves them what seems for like 15 minutes, and the next thing you know, he's coming back and they're worshiping a golden calf. Yeah. You know, you remember that story? Yeah. And he's pulling out his hair or pulling out his beard or something. He's really frustrated with the, with the children of Israel because, you know, he leaves them for just a little bit, and it seems like they turned their back on God. And he goes back onto Mount Sinai to talk with God about this, and, and, and he's, he's presenting his case, and he says, what am I supposed to do with these people? And after a while, in the course of the conversation, Moses says to God, show yourself to me. Show me your presence. And God says, okay. But I need to do it in a special way. Because no man can look at my face and live. And so God, you may remember, puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he covers him up in the, in the, covers that cleft of the rock and he presents himself before him. But Moses doesn't really see God. He only sees a shadow of God. But when Jesus comes, 
we see God. Because God has become man. He's put those two pieces together. It's as if God lifts his, his invisibility cloak and shows himself to us. Paul goes on to say that the Son is the firstborn over all creation. Sometimes people have read this and they sing, and they think, okay, so this means that Jesus was the first thing God created. No, that's not true. What he's really saying here is that by saying he's the firstborn over all creation is that Jesus has authority over all creation. Jesus rules all creation. And we know that because he goes on to say that, um, that he is the creator of all things. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. When you go to the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, I think oftentimes what we read there is the creation of the world, the creation of the earth, the separation of light from darkness, the separation of the sea from the land, the creation of all the animals that populate the world. But Paul's going beyond that here. He says the sun created everything. Everything you can see and everything you can't see. Things that are visible, things that are invisible, thrones and powers and authorities, everything there is in the universe. The sun has created it. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You ever thought about the fact that everything you do is controlled by what your brain tells you to do? I mean, you can't breathe without your brain telling you to breathe. You can't sleep without your brain telling you to sleep. You can't walk from point A to point B without your brain being engaged in that process because your brain is the very center of who you are. And Paul is saying Jesus is the brain of the universe. All things hold together through him. He's the linchpin. If you were to take him out, if you were to pull him out of the very center of the universe, we would have chaos. Because all things hold together through him. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Paul is saying Jesus is above all things. He is the very center. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the great reconciler, he says. All things were reconciled because of Jesus. 
Because one of the things that we know is that in the Garden of Eden, the world was broken. All creation was broken because of what Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. And we've been, we've been experiencing the consequences of that ever since. But when Jesus came, he fixed it. He reconciled us. He brought together those things that were apart. If I was smart, I would sit down right now and we would all go home. Because I'm not sure that you can say any more about Jesus as God than what Paul is saying right here. But I'm not so smart. I'm preaching today. And you know, I just feel kind of compelled to make just a couple of comments about what Paul is saying in, in this first section of Colossians. So please bear with me and don't go to sleep on those brand new seats. One of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing for this lesson today is why did Paul feel compelled to write this description of Christ to the Colossians? And I, I think it's because, and this is the first point I'd like to make, it's because Jesus is everything. The Colossians were experiencing a lot of other voices in their lives. They were having a lot of other people talk to them about what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be a disciple of God. And so they were, they were hearing these voices that were saying other things, not hearing voices in their heads, but other people that were speaking to them that were saying, you know, it's fine to follow Jesus, but if you really want to be spiritual, Jesus is just the beginning. Jesus is just a starting point. And, and we see this in a couple of places throughout the, throughout the rest of Colossians. Let me give you just a couple of examples. One is in Colossians chapter 2.8, where he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So apparently there are some people that are speaking to these Christians in Colossians, in, in Colossae, that are saying, hey, you know, uh, there are some other things that you ought to be paying attention to here. You know, there's some philosophies that are really important for you to know about. And Paul says, don't pay any attention to those. Those philosophies that people are bringing to you, they depend upon human wisdom that's pretty hollow. And they depend on elemental spirits that are different, that are not really uh, centered in Christ. Or in verse 16 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He says, don't worry about those other things. Don't worry about these extra festivals or Sabbath days or dietary restrictions or, or all of those things that you, people are telling you about. So it, it's, it's, it seems like there are some people here who are coming 
to these Christians at Colossae and are saying to them, you need to pay attention to some other stuff besides the fact that Jesus is God. There's a lot of speculation about who's doing this. A lot of folks have thought there's probably Jewish Christians or maybe some other people who are Jews who are trying to stress this particular teaching to the Christians in Colossae. The, uh, there's an a, a eminent scholar from the 20th century by the name of F.F. Bruce. And F.F. Bruce comments on this. Um, he says, the Christians in Colossae were urged to go in for this progressive wisdom and knowledge to explore the deeper mysteries by a series of successful, successive initiations until they attained perfection. Christian baptism was a preliminary initiation. But those who wish to proceed farther along the path of truth must put off all material elements by pursuing an ascetic regimen until at last they become citizens of the spiritual world, the realm of light. What Bruce is saying here is that there are a group of teachers, these elite teachers that were coming along and saying, you know, if you really want to know Jesus, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to do some, you need to do some other things. And he says baptism, Christian baptism, was a preliminary initiation. But the teachings that the people in Colossae were hearing from other people were suggesting, well, there's some other things you need to do as well. And so what they were hearing was, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to observe the Sabbath and religious celebrations like these new moon celebrations. Or if you really want to be spiritual, you need to adopt an ascetic lifestyle and put away anything in your life that brings you pleasure. Or if you really want to be spiritual, you really need to listen to and understand and grab onto these special teachings that we're bringing to you. And Paul's response to these false teachers is enough. Jesus is enough. In fact, he's more than enough. Jesus is everything. I don't know about you, but I don't think I've ever had somebody come to me and say, if you really want to be spiritual, you need to celebrate the new moon. <laughs> or if you really want to be spiritual, you need to sell everything you have and go live out in the desert like a desert monk or an ascetic. I've never had anybody say that to me. I'm guessing nobody said that to you either. But I do wonder sometimes if we may run into the same challenge that the Christians in Colossae did. Just different teachings. And if some of those challenges may not come from somebody who's outside of us, but it may come from inside of us. So a voice inside of ourselves that says, you know, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to be spiritual, this is what you need to do. And you can fill in the blank. I don't know what your blanks are. 
but I have a few that I have to watch out for. And those blanks are trying to separate me from Jesus. Those additions to the all-sufficiency of Jesus are nothing more than subtractions. Jesus is everything. And we don't need anything else besides him. The second point I would make is based on the next section of scripture that Nick read for us a little bit ago. In verse 21, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to you, been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. In verse 20, Paul talks about reconciliation and how Jesus has reconciled everything in all creation. But in this verse, he gets more personal. In verse 21, he says, you were alienated, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. This is not just about reconciling the world. This is reconciling me. What do we mean by reconciliation anyway? Well, reconciliation really is a separation. It's when two people, two things are separated and they can't be brought back together again. And the process of bringing them together is what we call reconciliation. I think one of the challenges that I find with uh, the whole notion of reconciliation is that is that I forget just how big the difference is between who God is and who I am. Have you ever met somebody famous? My first brush with fame was when I was about eight years old. And uh, I was a big baseball fan. In fact, I think when I was about eight years old, my whole life, was consumed by baseball. I was growing up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, my, my team was the Milwaukee Braves. And whether I felt good on a day or bad on a day probably depended upon whether the Braves won or lost. You know, when Hank Aaron hit a home run, I rejoiced, and when he struck out, I was devastated. And when I wasn't obsessing on the Braves, I was out in my backyard playing baseball because my parents built a house with a big backyard with the express purpose of making sure that the kids could go out and play in the backyard, and we did. We made the most of it, and most of the time for me, it was playing baseball. 
Well, that was what things were like when I was eight years old. And, um, and I had, uh, as, you know, as, as I was consumed with baseball, there was somebody in our house who became somewhat of a legend. His name was Lindy McDaniel. Now, I don't know if anybody here ever heard of Lindy McDaniel. He was an excellent relief pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. But what made him a legend in my house was that Lindy McDaniel was a Christian and every Sunday he went to church, even during baseball season, even when he was on the road. And one weekend, the St. Louis Cardinals came to Milwaukee. And so my parents knew that I was a fan of Lindy McDaniel and they knew the church that he was going to be going to, and they had some friends there, and they made arrangements for me to go and spend the night, Saturday night, with our, my friends, Uncle Harry and Aunt Jenny, we call them, and, uh, and, and, and so that Sunday morning I could get up and go to church and meet Lindy McDaniel. So Sunday morning arrives, and I get up, and I go to Bible class, and I go to church. I don't remember anything about it. <laughs> right? Because I'm on pins and needles. I'm beyond myself with excitement because today I'm going to get to meet Lindy McDaniel, baseball pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals in the flesh. The one thing I remember about that Sunday morning was that I was standing at the back of the auditorium and I see this tall guy come down the aisle. I think he was about 6'3", but I thought he was probably 10 feet tall. And, and, he, and he comes up, and my Aunt Jenny says, Lindy, there's something, someone here I'd like for you to meet. This is Dale Hawley, and he's come over here to meet you today. And I was like, this is Lindy McDaniel. I, I didn't know what to say. I'm sure I said something. I'm sure he said something. I'm sure he said something like, well, hi, Dale. It's nice to meet you. And probably reached out his hand for me to shake it. And I, I probably reached out his hand and shook it. And I probably said something which I'm pretty sure was stupid. <laughs> because that's what you do when you don't know what to say. You say things that are stupid, right? But I felt like I was in the presence of greatness. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever been in that spot where you felt so awestruck that you didn't know what to say? When you read verses 15 to 20 of Colossians chapter 1, when I read that, I begin to get a glimpse of what it means to be awestruck. Because Paul describes Jesus as the image of the invisible God. The one who is the creator and the one who is over all creation. The one who is the head of the church. The one who has brought all things together. The one who has reconciled all of creation. That is Jesus. And when I begin to think about this is who the Son of God is. I begin to realize just how small I am. And what a big difference there is between who the Son of God is and who I am.
In Luke chapter 5, there's a story about Jesus as he was walking down uh, the beach on the Sea of Galilee. And as he's, as he's walking down the seashore, he's, he's early in his ministry and he's beginning to gather a lot of people around him who are interested in what he has to say. And, and, and uh, because he had, there's so many people around that want to hear him, he comes up to this fisherman on the, side of the, uh, on the side of the shore and he says, hey, would you mind taking me out in your boat a little ways so I can teach to the people without ever having everybody crowd up around me? Well, and this fisherman was not picked out accidentally, I'm sure. His name was Simon, and we know him better as Peter. So he said, sure, and he took Jesus out, and Jesus taught the people from sitting in, sitting in Simon Peter's boat for a while. And, and when he was all done, he said to Simon Peter, well, uh, how about if we go out in the lake a little ways and uh, see if we can catch some fish? And Simon Peter says, well, you know, I, I was just out there all night, and I didn't catch anything. I don't, I don't think the fish are biting. But if you ask me to do it, Jesus, I'll do it. And so he goes out in the lake a little ways, and Simon and his, and his partner, I think it was his brother, Andrew, threw the, throw their nets overboard because that's how they're catching fish. And all of a sudden, they start to bring their nets up, and they're so heavy with fish that the nets are beginning to break. And they call over their partners, uh, James and John, and they say, hey, come here, help us out. You know, we're, we're, we have so many fish, we don't know what to do with them. And they start throwing all the fish into the two boats now, and both boats are starting to sink. And all of a sudden, Simon realizes what's going on, and he gets a glimpse of who it is he's dealing with here. And he says to Jesus, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. It's like for the first time, he begins to see who Jesus is and how that compares to who he is. And the gulf between the two is immense. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. I'm almost done here. I think that's what we're talking about with reconciliation. Because reconciliation begins by recognizing how wide the gap is between who Jesus is and who we are. It's like he's standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and we're standing on the other side. And there is no way that we're going to be able to cross the gap to get to it. But the good news is, and what, what, what uh, Paul says, he says, now he has reconciled you. And notice who has done the work of reconciliation. It's not us. We're not the ones who have, who have brought us close to Christ. Jesus has done the work of reconciliation. Jesus has built the bridge 
across that Grand Canyon. And Jesus has said to us, come on over. It's time to cross over. We have a journey that we need to go on together. And you can leave your GPS behind. And you can leave your map behind. And you can leave your problems behind. And you can leave your burdens behind. Because I am everything that you need. Jesus is everything. And he has reconciled us to himself. And though he is the untouchable, the invisible God of the universe, he has made himself known to us and has bridged the gap between us.